for the first four years of the consulting firm, I was I had more work than I knew what to do with. Tons of music startups, tons of events, you know, a lot of money flowing in. And about a, seven or eight months ago, uh, everything sort of dried up overnight. Once upon a time, music startups were plentiful. But we're almost a whole generation gone from the go-go days of Internet 1.0, when, in the late 90s, you could practically shake a tree in Silicon Valley, New York, or London, and venture capital would come raining down on music startups. But since then, the road to digital music monetization has become littered with the husks of mostly well-intentioned, but now dead, companies. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, and the subject of this episode of Musonomics, the headwinds faced by digital music startups. Honestly, it was my own personal experience. So I've been writing about music startups for several years, and about five years ago, I started a consulting firm to work with these startups. And for the first four years of the consulting firm, I was I had more work than I knew what to do with. Tons of music startups, tons of events, you know, a lot of money flowing in. And about a, seven or eight months ago, uh, everything sort of dried up overnight. That's Courtney Harding, a digital music consultant, host of the Music Biz podcast, and author of the book, How We Listen Now, Essays and Conversations About Music and Technology. Courtney recently posted an essay called The Music Startup Meltdown, with the subtitle, It's Going to Get Worse Before It Gets Better. You know, music, I think around 2011, 2012, was the thing to do. It was very, very easy to go to a music hack day, start a company, get a few million dollars. I think what we've seen is those companies that did that are now out of runway, and they are either selling or shutting down. MEDEM, the world's largest global music industry conference, returns to Cannes in the south of France for its 50th annual meeting this weekend. And I'll be there. It's where music executives and many others in the business convene. And each year, they're joined by a horde of tech startups. If you're a music startup or a startup interested in working with the music industry, Medem Lab is your chance to pitch your business to investors and strategic partners. To be clear, music startups is a term we're using to describe entrepreneurial companies that build value by using or touching music or information about music or music usage to consumers or businesses. Music startups include consumer-facing services and apps like Spotify and Bands in Town, or business-facing services like Revelator or OpenPlay, whose customers are other music companies. They can be funded by the founders themselves, by friends and family, angel investors, venture capital firms, and strategic partners like the major music companies, or they may be profitable enough to sustain their own growth, a rarity in the world of digital music. In her essay... Courtney dug into the companies that were the finalists of the MedemNet competition in 2012 and 13. She noticed that most had met a sad fate. 18 of the 30 no longer seemed to exist at all. Others still have a web presence, 
but haven't posted anything new in years. Or are zombie startups running out the clock, sometimes never having launched. Only a few have actually grown into real businesses. So I talked to plenty of startup founders who say, oh, I love music and all my friends love music and we want to discover new indie bands, therefore everyone wants to. And it's like, no, not everyone wants to. The vast majority of people don't care. They listen to Pandora, they listen to Spotify maybe, they listen to the radio, they go to two or three shows a year, and they're completely happy with that. So startup founders are going full steam ahead with an idea that they love, but which doesn't necessarily hold up against the market's requirements for growth and profitability. One of the main headwinds faced by music startups is this misconception that there are many large underserved markets in the music industry left to tap into. Every streaming service is more or less the same product. And what I mean by that is they have more or less the same catalog with, you know, exclusives, exceptions, but 99.9% of the catalog everyone has. You know, streaming services are by definition a place where you can stream music on demand. They've all got that. They've all got playlists. Great. Not only are gaps hard to find, but many startups charge into the music space without this understanding. Courtney took a consulting call with a startup a couple of months ago. She'd heard the same pitch countless times before, so she pushed back. Had they done any customer discovery? Because if you're going to start a company, you're going to make sure the market fit is there, right? Like, any other company does that. If you're Starbucks, you do a lot of research into different locations, and you're not going to open up a Starbucks. Well, I was going to say you're not going to open up Starbucks down the block from another Starbucks, but we're in Manhattan, so that actually happens a lot. But, you know, you're going to look at the demographics of the neighborhood, and you're going to make an informed decision. So, you know, if you're a music startup, you should actually have some data on if your product is needed in the market. And I gave them this advice, and they wrote me back this incredibly nasty email. And I, I thought, well, you know, your, your company is going to go under. And I've tried, and you know what? Throw my hands up. If you really want to do a music startup, like, go jump off that cliff, man. Have fun. That may sound harsh, but it's not far from the truth. For startups, the music space can be like a post-apocalyptic movie. The Walking Dead live among us. While only a few souls are surviving, many of them struggling to do so. But why is that? Is it the space? Or startups themselves? What makes a better music startup? I think it's one that is based on actual market needs, for one. Um, I think it's one that is run by people who have experience in the space. I think it's one that makes money. So we decided to dig into one of those money-making startups. OpenPlay fills a need in the marketplace of helping record labels manage their catalogs and all of the data about all of the music in their catalogs themselves, and then delivering all of that music and data to the distributor or supply chain partner of their choice. You recently sat down with Edward Guinness and his business partner, Brady Brim DeForest. Edward was working at Concord, one of the largest independent labels. He had a front row seat to the problems and challenges that the label was facing on how to get their music distributed during the industry's digital transition. 
He envisioned and built software that not only helped Concord's problems immediately, but could then be scaled to other labels that need the same services. So, Edward Guinness, you were inside of Concord and you needed to build a solution to solve a problem that you had yourself. That, that, that's right. And the way you approach this problem is, is very uh, critical to the early stage of, of a technology like ours. Uh, primarily, you have to start with a mindset that you're going to take this technology outside of the company. Uh, a, lot, a lot of labels, of, uh, especially larger labels, have built in-house solutions uh, to manage some of these challenges, but their, their intent has always been to keep those solutions in-house and away from any competitor or any label out there. We took the opposite approach. So open play works because it fills a very important need for record labels. This is something that uh, labels day-to-day uh, struggle with as, as their catalog increases and the amount of effort it takes to get the various versions in play. Uh, our, our software and our platform really helps those labels focus on the content itself and less on the, the, the fire drill that, that then happens when that content needs to go outbound. Is OpenPlay profitable today? OpenPlay is profitable. That's Brady speaking. But it's been entirely bootstrapped. And, and, and that's you know, a, a unique um, opportunity that we've had due to our partnership with Concord that's enabled us to leverage the, the initial investment that they made in the technology um, and then scale it out on, on real, uh, you know, based on organic growth, which I think you know, for, for a startup in the music space is, is uh, certainly you know, one of the, uh, the simplest paths forward. Uh, you know, raising money in this, um, in this market is, is challenging, and, and especially um, within this particular vertical. And yet you haven't needed to raise money, and that's what we really mean when we talk about bootstrapping, right? Not that you might not want to take on outside investments, but you've managed to run the business at a profitable enough level in order to sustain it while you grow. Correct. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. But most startups don't have sufficient revenue and profits to fund operations and growth. They need investors. David Pakman was the CEO of eMusic, the world's leading digital retailer of independent music second only to iTunes in number of downloads sold. Now he's a partner at Venrock, a leading venture capital firm whose mission it is to help entrepreneurs build disruptive, successful companies. In his seven years at the firm, David has not invested in any digital music companies. In fact, Venrock has never invested in a digital media company. We haven't seen any profitable companies emerge, and I guess we're a little traditional, and at some point we think companies got to be able to be profitable in order for us to have a great return. Um, so it's, uh, it's sad that I haven't made an investment. I'd love to, but um, because of the state of music licensing, I, we haven't found any investment opportunities. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, was signed into law by President Bill Clinton in 1998 with a goal of updating copyright laws for the then still nascent digital age. The DMCA provided a mechanism for, eventually, webcasters like Pandora to have a radio-like streaming music business. Since then, according to PitchBook, approximately 175 digital music companies were created and funded by venture investors. Of course, many more were funded by angel investors, but among those funded by VCs, 
33 were acquired by larger companies, but often for less money than their investors put in. And of those, Pacman said only seven have achieved meaningful results, returning more than $25 million in profit to their investors. The end result of these perilous market conditions is that the only companies that can afford to sustain loss-making digital music operations at scale are internet giants like Apple, Google, and Amazon, companies that use music to drive other aspects of their much more profitable core businesses, like iPhone sales, digital advertising, and membership in Amazon Prime. Apple launched the iTunes Music Store in 2003 and became the largest retailer of downloaded music and devices for playing all that music as iPods and iPhone sales exploded. But music downloads have declined the last two years, while streaming has grown dramatically. Apple launched Apple Music a year ago, and in 2015, streaming was up 45%, and has quadrupled since 2011, when Spotify launched in the U.S. Google offers the streaming service Google Play Music, sells ads against music searches, and owns YouTube. Amazon offers Amazon Prime Music as a throw-in for Amazon Prime subscribers. But what about standalone music services like Spotify and Pandora? They were once startups. Well, Spotify pays out 70 to 80% of its revenue to rights holders. With a 20% gross margin, Spotify continues to exist on the largesse and patience of its investors, despite 30 million paid subscribers and 100 million in total. In 2015, Spotify had almost 2 billion euros in revenue, that's billion with a B, a 45% increase over 2014, but lost $178 million. Pandora has over 80 million listeners a month and pays just over 50% of revenues and royalties. Since 1998, no standalone webcaster has been able to generate a profit, including Pandora. Spotify has raised $1.5 billion in equity and just raised a billion dollars in convertible debt as investors push back on rich valuations of unprofitable music tech companies. Last year, Deezer canceled its plan to IPO. Rhapsody is still losing about $3 million a month. And YouTube acquired Bandpage for about a third of the capital Bandpage raised. Not a great return for Bandpage's investors. And if we look back only three years ago, more than half of 2013's most promising music startups no longer exist. So what can music startups do? The rates should be lower. Not, not massively lower, but lower enough that companies can actually be profitable so that they can sustain themselves and remain in business. They all end up going out of business or raising more money. So uh, I think the notion is great, the price is too high. Pacman won't invest because he thinks the rates for music licenses are too high for startups to bear. He feels so strongly that these rates should be lowered that he testified in front of Congress. Yeah. So one thing that I thought that was interesting, um, this is a multi-month hearing, and uh, there's about 30 witnesses per side. Um, one side is essentially internet companies and folks who fund them. The other side are record companies and music publishers. On the internet company side, a lot of different business executives came, CEOs, 
Bob Pittman of Clear Channel and mm. CFO of Pandora, business people. On the music industry side, no business people came. The only people who testified were lawyers. What does that say about how engaged the business itself is in trying to advance its agenda or trying to find a solution? You only send your lawyers to go talk about rates and talk about whether the, your license or licensees should become profitable. I found that super depressing. Why is there less innovation and less entrepreneurial activity around digital music? Well, because it's hard to raise money and most companies fail. But it's where we are now, 20 years into the digital music revolution. So that's why watching Apple is pretty exciting, because it's kind of, in my mind, I think it's the last hurrah. Now, that may sound short-sighted. Uh, is music going away? No. Will there be other models sometime 10 years in the future? Perhaps. But if Apple can't build a business with their incredible marketing machine around music, or even subsidize one that works for hundreds of millions of people, then I think we have to come to terms with the fact that we don't have a product in music that, people, that a large number of people are willing to pay for anymore. While David Pakman stands firmly on the belief that the music industry could do more to ease the pressure on music startups, another problem rings loud and clear. The consumers. I come from a place where I, I work at this to always remain um, very aware of what the audience wants. It's not about what we want, really. In order to win in a, in a business environment, you have to wake up driving value to forward to your audience and those that create. That's John Van Halle, who previously worked at Universal Music Group. We wanted to find out how much of the challenges facing music startups rest with the music industry. I'd say in part. Like, uh, um... I was thinking about this coming over, Larry. Uh, like in a car crash, occasionally there's a single person liable for the damage. I think in this case, there's multiple liabilities. I think the music industry uh, hasn't had a, a long-term approach to it, which has um, you know, forced early-stage companies into high advances and, and conditions uh, that, that made it financially challenging for them to thrive. For example, Spotify, which needs direct licenses from record labels and music publishers, pays millions of dollars up front as an advance on future royalties generated as subscribers listen to music. That's millions of dollars of investors' money paid directly to labels and publishers. David Pachman and others have testified before Congress that the rates that the music industry charges startups for music are unsustainably high, and that the industry would be better served by an ecosystem of hundreds or thousands of healthy startups paying more reasonable but not bone-crushing rates. John, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, fair and not bone-crushing rates is what I think everyone aspires to. I suppose that's in the eye of the beholder. Well, that's, that's where it really comes down to the, it's definitional on what is fair and bone crushing. The notion of, you know, this fairness of rate, it's really interesting. The music, music space is one of the few industries in the world where there, there isn't dynamic market rate pricing. Um, the cost of tomatoes goes up and down. Other digital media assets can as well. In Pandora's case, for their radio-like service that exists today, they spend about half their revenue on music licenses, 
and Spotify pays somewhere between 70 and 80% of their revenue for music. Startup investors and creators are saying that label rates for music licenses are way too high. Is it fair to point blame at the music industry? Well, I'll wrap a couple point of views. And, uh, you know, from the, the startup founder point of view, you know, the rates are too high, my cost of goods are too high, my advances are too high, they're onerous, and that puts undue pressure on me to produce quicker, faster results. On the other hand, there's massive wind of engagement, right? The, even since we started speaking today, there's, there's arguably more people engaged with music than there were 20 minutes ago. Um, it's baked into our DNA as a human race. We used music to communicate before we learned how to speak. That's the good news. The average person spends $150 on music a year. Half of that is on live music. One company found an efficient solution to a huge problem in the live music industry, the plus one problem. Say I want to see a show and I buy four tickets through Ticketmaster. Now Ticketmaster knows my name, email, and home address, but they don't have access to my Twitter handle, Facebook account, or Instagram feed, nor do they know who I'm bringing to the concert. This plus one problem is huge. It impacts artist revenue, impacts sponsors and brands and agencies' willingness to activate around live events. So one day, the ex-Googler who founded CrowdAlbum was at a concert, taking notice of all the phone screens hovering before the stage, snapping pictures and sharing content. He's like, oh, it'd be cool to go find where all that went. He's like, wait, I know how to do that. And he built that, and he didn't need permission to gather all the social shares from live events. Is that a music company? Well, it started with music because it was around the notion of fan engagement, fandom at live music events. Sounds like more of a data or messaging company in that they don't need to ask for permission to actually get the music. Absolutely true. Um, however, it impacted the music industry. Music startups that succeed are disruptive businesses. They are businesses that change the way we consume and interact with music. Like Napster, which revolutionized the way we think about sharing and buying music, and essentially gave birth to the digital music revolution. While profits in the digital music business have remained elusive, businesses connected to the live music scene even if they are still digital companies, are finding success. Live Nation, the concert and ticketing business, had a record year in 2015, with over $7.5 billion in revenue and operating income of 11%. So what else is growing? Michael Dorff started the Knitting Factory in New York in 1986, and 10 years later, during the first internet music bubble, he co-founded the Digital Club Network, that didn't work, but Michael went on to produce music festivals for a long time, including a long-running charity tribute series, 
at Carnegie Hall and elsewhere, including the recent David Bowie tributes. But in 2008, Michael opened his first city winery in New York. Forbes reported in 2013 alone, Michael generated more profit at City Winery than all his years in the internet business. City wineries are now open in New York, Chicago, Nashville, Atlanta, and Boston is opening later this year. I asked Michael if he could ever imagine a download or substitute for the live music experience. The first time I put on those Google... 3D glasses that came with the New York Times. Uh, the cardboard? The cardboard a couple months ago. It was really the first time I realized, you know, there could be a technology that would be immersive enough. And, you know, you can digitize a lot of things, but that, that being together with people in a room, feeling the music, truly feeling it, um, is, is still not able to be replicated. And... For that reason, the live industry and other reasons, I would say the live industry has has blossomed. Um, I, I would almost say that the whole digitization of music has has pushed the live side of the business to even stronger value. Um, that opportunity to actually be, especially in an intimate space, but connected to an artist, becomes more precious. Um, the the it used to be record industry was supporting talent with with tour income uh, and lots of support to go out there and play live. The live performance was there to support record sales. Now it's the exact opposite today. It's all about creating that value in that live performance. And, uh, and, and that, that obviously is my focus now. A report from Credit Suisse in April said 2016 will be the first year since the turn of the century in which the global music industry will grow revenues. The report maintains that we can expect industry growth to accelerate in the next three years, driven by increased access to music services over smartphones and faster mobile networks, and dramatically more consumption of music on ad-supported and paid streaming platforms, as the strongest ones achieve profitability with scale. And in the meantime, startups seeking to innovate at the edges in music analytics, cloud-based software as a service, and in the live music business, for the time being, have the best opportunities to build profitable, sustainable businesses. That's it for this episode of Musonomics. Thank you to our guests, Courtney Harding, John Van Holler, Michael Dorf, and David Packman. The Musonomics podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Sam Behrens, our founding editorial director, whose name you've heard at the end of every episode since our beginning. This episode was produced by editorial director Carmen Cuesta-Roca and engineered by Ibar Aiton, with help from Kiana Agina and Samantha Tubner. Thanks to Ron Sadoff and Catherine Moore. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening to Musonomics. Music